everyone. Welcome to Science in Dance podcast. Um, it's great to be back. We've had a bit of a two-month break from these, but just only so that I can organize um, who's coming on next. And today I'm super excited. Um, Paige Rice is a researcher out of Edith Cowan University, um, originally from Minnesota in the US. And I met her at the iAdams conference in 2018 in Helsinki. So uh, it was great to hear her present and uh, chat chat um, on strength and conditioning there. And this is really one for the researchers out there. This is one for the diehard dance scientists. And this is one for the dance teachers, coaches, and dancers looking to really understand what it is that's going to make them jump higher. And um, a lot of people have been asking the question, is that even important? Well, we know that dancers have got to do all these fantastic leaps and show off their flexibility now, so I would argue it is. Um, I'm sure Paige would too. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast uh, with Paige Rice. Um, As always, give me your feedback, let me know what you think, and um, enjoy. Okay, hi, and welcome to episode number four of the Science and Dance podcast. Today I'm with um, Paige Rice from Edith Cowan University, and she's based in Perth at the moment in Australia, and today we're going to be talking about um, some dance biomechanics, so this is really one for um, all the research buffs out there, you know, if you love a bit of biomechanics, you love a bit of dance science, then this is probably going to be your bread and butter. Um, It's going to get pretty in-depth, I reckon. in terms of theory and looking, bring trying to bring the world of strength and conditioning to dance and vice versa, and, and kind of introduce more um, strength and conditioning research <clears throat> principles um, into the world of dance too, but from from a slightly different angle. So, um, without further ado, welcome, Paige. Thank you very much. Nice to have you Excited here. To be here. Great stuff. And I should probably say, Paige and I um, first met at the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science conference in Helsinki last. Was it October? Um, and we had a great week. Exactly. So if you've if you've not been to uh, if you've not been to that conference before, you should definitely check it out because it is fun, um, and we can both vouch for that. Okay. Um, so Paige, just so obviously for people that don't know who you are, um, where are you where are you what are you doing right now? Where are you from? And uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah. So. Uh, like Rupert said, currently I'm a PhD candidate in Australia, but I got here, uh, I guess I'll sort of rewind, I'm from Minnesota in the U.S. originally, so that's where the Canadian accent almost and I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin-Ross where I had a double major in exercise and sports science as well as Spanish. After that, I went on to do my master's at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. And that was where I sort of married my passion of uh, exercise science and biomechanics with dance and started doing projects, including Gangers and then some other athletes as well, such as volleyball players and endurance runners, to compare how dancers fit into uh, sports science. Because obviously, quite limited research regarding dancers, how they function, how they adapt. Uh, in addition to that, like Rupert mentioned, strength and conditioning, how we can enhance their performance. So, uh, from my masters, I ended up 
in Australia doing my PhD here with Sophia Nemtius. Uh, she's more of a change, in, change of direction oriented scientist with a lot of different niches, but uh, my two other supervisors are in the U.S. and have a much more basic stuff. Uh, Kevin Zwetslut and uh, Nishikawa. So some of my uh, interest is more biophysics, but for the purpose of today, we'll kind of uh, hover in the biomechanics of dancers. So that's how, yeah, that's how we, we got here. And I'm just wrapping up a training study with dancers that I think we'll maybe touch on a bit later. Yeah, so I think that's what's going to be um, super interesting today from um, for the for listeners is the fact that um, you know you've got some things going on that are <clears throat> intervention based and um, quite in depth on the uh, quite invasive actually on the sports science technique kind of thing, um, which we'll get on to. And you know we were, we were chatting beforehand and saying you know that, that we want more training studies we want more rcts our randomized controls um training studies in dance as a whole yeah you know the great work so far has been relatively cross-sectional or been um mm. and, and even though the training studies might be quite small they're still we're building this picture and, and hopefully it has that snowball effect um you know there are some some randomized control stuff going on in the uk um, you know, with uh, with Nico's work at Elmhurst on his uh, dance eleven plus um, mm -hmm. work, and but nevertheless, again, he would he would I'm sure I'm not you know paraphrasing or anything like that probably, but um, he would say you know it's still a piece of the puzzle. You know, we need to know more, and we need to know more at a as a, a gross a gross level about training the person. We need to know more at like certain joints, and we need to know what contributes to dance as we as we know it because it's pretty. Uh, yeah pretty uh, broad what people can do with their bodies these yeah very complex and very complex yeah. and um so i think i think the big uh, the big starting question from from me to you is what is your big question you know what what did you want to find out on your phd what were, well, what remit were you given for your phd what was what were you trying to what's the trying to find yeah so um I might, all, I might back up and then get into that because I, I have an answer to that, but it, it might be a confusing connection. So uh, the first study that I ever did on dancers, I was thinking about just the way that they leap and how, you know, you go from the knee flexion and sort of maximal dorsiflexion right before the takeoff of any leap. Uh, and my passion is stretch shortening cycles. So I usually do think about jumping, leaping, blah, blah, blah. And when dancers take off, they obviously go into maximal plantar flexion and then extend the knee. And we also know that stiffness and compliancy of different tissues is quite a hot topic right now. So I basically just looked at maximal strength of the knee extensors, maximal plantar flexion strength, and then uh, muscular articular stiffness. And I compared dancers and untrained controls to just see if, are they stronger even with all this training that they do? Um, you know, whilst people think they're quite weak at times, I 
highly doubt it. So anyway, I ended up finding, interestingly enough, that while the dancers had significantly stronger uh, ankles, their knee extensor strength was the same, or at least it wasn't significantly different. So were you measuring, uh, were you measuring this on a, a, on a dynamometer, like, a, like an isokinetic type thing, or...? So I actually, the, this is kind of a, um, the beauty of exercise science is that you don't always know what a lab looks like or the type of equipment. <laughs> and it was a pretty interesting setup where we had a force plate where people would stand on top of it. Um, There's a wooden block and then they'd stand on top of the wooden block with their ankles in a neutral position. And then we had car jacks set up. And then you'd put a bar through the car, car jacks basically and move it up or down so that it was really snug on their shoulders. And then push as hard into the bar as they could. Uh, do, you know that's and- a, do you know that's a great rehab exercise as well? You know, I, I love I love an isometric um, car phrase. I really, really do it. A variety yeah. of heights. So that was the that was the planner flexion and the knee extensors. They were in a chair where uh, we had a strain gauge. Strain gauge. So there was basically a strap on their ankle attached to a chain that had a strain gauge, and then the stiffness was measured with what's called a free oscillation technique where you basically just perturbate a system and then uh, whilst it's on top of a force plate so that then you obtain a force time curve and after algorithms upon algorithms find the stiffness of the system. So it's called a single... um, excuse me, it's called a, a sort of like single degree of freedom type of oscillation because you only have the ankles free. So, yeah, kind of interesting. And after that, I wondered, okay, why would their ankles be stronger and not their knees? So I started to look really into the mechanics of dancers and came across some studies that suggested they do use their ankle a little bit more prominently during dance-specific short-mean cycle tasks. There's another study, um, Harley et al., in, I can't remember the date, um, or the year, excuse me, but they found that dancers in physically active controls jumped to the same height. Now, that doesn't make too much sense when you think about it because dancers have such a high volume of stretch for mean cycles um, day after day, and they do have pretty impressive center of mass displacement as well during a leap. But when you have them do sort of a foreign task, like a counter-movement jump where you have to, um, or you, you know, in theory, shift your hips back and drive your hips forward, so you're sort of disrupting that aesthetic component. Maybe they can't sort of go above and beyond like they might be able to in a leap where they're really used to that unilateral movement as so well. So we're really getting down to kind of like task-specific testing, really. Yes. Um, and so is that, is, that, that, is that a worry for you? Is that a worry for you at all? Because, you know, we, have we, do you lean towards us having to test dancers as dancers, in the, you know, in order to justify performance improvements in, you know, leaping and jumping? Right. I, you know, I think if you're comparing dancers to dancers, you can use a counter-movement jump. If you're comparing, and this is part of my master's thesis, actually, 
I wanted to see whether or not dancers, volleyball players, and untrained individuals had different stretch shortening cycle capabilities just around the ankle. So we had a hopping model where they had to, they actually had to lay on a sled. So we built this sled that was with dual fork plates. It's really neat. And you could sort of uh, change the angle at which they were on the sled. So we had it quite shallow at like 20 degrees or something. Uh, but they only used their ankles. So we took a strap and tethered their knee down because we just wanted to see kind of whether they could still, you know, kind of hang in there with volleyball players, the best stretch running cycle athletes out there like we know. Uh, and there were no difference between the dancers and the volleyball players because they were virtually identical, but then obviously both of them performed, outperformed the untrained group. So I think when you look at dancers and other types of athletes, I don't know what would be the most ideal, you know, kind of test that we get. But as far as dancers go, there's actually no, and this is coming into uh Part of this study that I'm doing currently, there's no correlational data on what determines sleeping performance. So that's uh, one of the questions that I was looking at. So looking at some plantar flexion strength um, on a dynamometer this time, as well as muscle and tendon stiffnesses with ultrasound, and then also looking at uh, a term called residual force and so when you look at just concentric only strength on a dynamometer at different angular velocities, so they're pushing forward uh, planar flexing while the pedal is moving, their strength will be a little bit, or the, I should say their peak torque is a little bit lower than it would be at just a fixed isometric position. So then when you take that torque, that occur, the peak torque that occurs during the isokinetic contraction and compare it to the torque that occurs around the ankle during a stretch shortening cycle. So you determine at what position the angular velocity is the same. Yeah. And you can, mark, you can track this and you can find the residual force in the answer. Now that's uh, sort of attributed to some different tissues such as, you know, tendon stiffness, like I mentioned, and then potentially tighten as well, which is another, is the other area of interest with my Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and those, those are big, those are big areas of interest, aren't they, you know, and I think, the, I think from um, certainly the question that I think will burn in many um, people's minds is for dancers that are looking, you know, some dancers, I mean, I've got dancers, uh, certainly that I've trained to jump higher. And in a gross um, way, by them going into class and continuously practicing their Allegro steps and gaining some force production capability in the gym, whether it's through yeah. maximal force loading, trap bar, deadlift, squat, whatever you want, mm. maybe some plyometric intervention over a, long, over a large period, as you say, probably 12 weeks and longer, is that enough to help dancers jump higher? I think that's the question. You know, we we all, as coaches, we talk about the transfer 
or the lack of transfer maybe from certain exercises in the gym to um, the studio, to the field, to, the, to the, where, wherever the performance arena is. And it's always been a worry of mine as a coach. Is what I'm doing actually going to make somebody jump higher? And I think in, tra- in terms of anecdotally in training, I see performance improvements when I've got girls and guys doing heavy heavy reps, some yeah. some speed, some kind of speed strength movement, and then jump yeah. then jumping in the way they want to jump. So I think that yeah. do you, do you, so my question is, do you think that the in terms of how we train dancers, should we still be sticking to doing the simple things well? Or do you think that we need to get really specific these days? I yeah, I love that question. Uh, and it sort of segues me into what my big question as well with my PhD was, which is how do you make dancers leap higher while maintaining their aesthetic dancing capabilities and uh, you know kind of preserving all of the technique that has been ingrained in them for years but allowing them to train hard like other team sport athletes uh, and because I mean that- I think the, the, the other question I mean it's just, it's not a question much a question but the other thing to think about or that certainly SNC coaches listening to this will think about is Okay, I don't want to put. None of us want to put any mass on. No, no dancer wants to put any mass on, really. Um, and you know, we know that if we probably spend too much time in the gym, we're going to do the hundred meters a bit slower, and probably not going to jump as high because, well, we're not leaving the ground. Um, and I've certainly been there. You know, I've I've probably battled personally for the last six to twelve months on. Okay, I'm ten kilos heavier than I was two years ago. I wasn't jumping as high. But now I am jumping as high as I was 10 kilos lighter, but my force capability has had to increase and I've had to get used to what I've got. So, you know, I don't think dancers want to go through that for for a number of reasons. Aesthetically, they don't want to put on size. Physically, they don't want to put on size because it might make them move slower. So, and looking at the research more recently is looking at, you know, how much does plyometric training contribute? How much does strength training or weighted jumps or Olympic lifting. So, you know, is it enough to say, let's work on max force, let's work on plyometrics, and then practice soda char, uh, grand jeté, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, there is, like you said, there is a big debate of specificity versus simplicity, and where, you know, what level of athlete requires what. I think for dancers, you usually get novice weightlifters coming to you. So you have to obviously change the way that they naturally move in the weight room. So when they squat, obviously, they can't just keep their shoulders over their hips anymore. Um, But I think then progressing them into sort of heaviness. Now, with my training study that I just wrapped up here, I had a block progression. So it consisted of four different blocks that, for various reasons, we chose the order um, based on tissue adaptation mainly, and then sort of performance optimization as well. So when to peak them. 
And the first block was isometrics that we looked at sort of holding and pushing exercises at different muscles. So, so like we've got that as like yielding and overcoming type isometrics. Is that right? Yeah. Like So one, yeah. one thing where something's weighting you down and then one thing where some, you're, where you're pushing against something, is that, would that be? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yielding and overcoming. And trying to, like I said, put the, and just so that the listeners kind of, know where I'm coming from. So I'm big on ankles, big on sort of the role of ankles in dancers and dancers stretch shortening cycle. And so this was a, as crazy as it sounds, a 12 week training program in the weight room that focused on ankles. So they did, um, but yeah, you know, you know, so how, how appropriate, <laughs> you know, yeah. and finally, um, that's what I'm thinking, finally, because like we, t- you know, as you mentioned before, before we went live was, you know, dancers are trained from such a young age to use the extremities of their feet right down to the end, the articulation of, you know, the, the tinus phalangeal joint, um, you know, yeah. MTP joint, all that. Um, and now you're starting, you know, we're really starting to look at, if we take these brilliant strength and conditioning principles such as isometric, eccentric, concentric training and do it for what dancers need, in inverted commas, what happens? And I think that is just in itself is why people, I really hope people do listen to this because, you know, I'm sure you're doing what other people wish or were thinking about, you know. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it was really a great experience and – Seeing dancers come into the weight room and, you know, and having that first sort of exposure to to lifting is really neat to see how they can become confident with it as well. And with the isometrics, it's such a great first block because you're not doing too much movement. You just have to figure out how to control what you've got. So, you know, holding a bar on your back at different ankle positions while then, you know, kind of figuring out what what you're doing with your core and, you know, sort of maintaining all that balance that is just now being loaded. Um, And from there, we transitioned into more of a traditional resistance training. So they were doing calf raises and dorsiflexion with a kettlebell on the end of the foot, pulling it up and, um, yeah, just kind of doing single leg, double leg, sitting down, you know, targeting the soleus a bit more. From there, transitioning into accentuated eccentrics where we had them in a Smith machine and standing up, they would obviously raise onto both toes and then they lowered down with just one foot. So they got up to 140% of their max. So they were really lifting quite a bit there. And then they did the same thing sitting. So this setup is so difficult to explain. It was the craziest thing. They sat on a Actually, they sat on like a plyo box, of course. And then and their feet were on top of a smaller plyo box. And they'd have the bar sitting on top of their knees and they go up into plantar flexion, then bring one knee away, and then lower with just the one. I think. Angle. I think for. I think out of reference, I think I actually have a video of us doing something similar. 
uh, as a training exercise. So I, I, what I'll do is I'll probably attach, try and attach some of these setups um, in the show notes so that people can kind of um, just take a picture, you know, just so people can kind of see. But, I, but it's um, so you're really trying to uh, essentially, if I, talk, if I use like gym bro science kind of like terminology, you're really trying to hit the calf and the ankle from or yes. the foot from a lot of different angles yeah. here. Um, and I had been dorsiflexion with um, the kettlebell, sort of the first block. They were just holding it isometrically, and then they were doing full range of motion. And then the last, um, or the, not the last, excuse me, the accentuated eccentric version was sort of lowering down. I would help them up with the kettlebell that was whatever, 50, or no, excuse me, 25 kilos, I think. <clears throat> and That's big. then they would, yeah, they would lower down on their own. So they were getting kind of that dorsiflexion, uh, like we mentioned before we got on the podcast, just about a co-contraction. And then they do eversion, inversion as well. And uh, the last block was plyometric. So to go back to your earlier question, I wanted to really strengthen them, build them up, and increase their work capacity. And then at the very end, go back to something that they do quite naturally because they love to jump and leap. And so yeah. getting to that last... I, I, th I think that was going to be my question is that, like, did you do any um, jumping throughout? Was there any jumping programmed in throughout the first three phases or were you just letting them... No. Okay. So the first three phases were just with weights and... Just like I said, around the ankle. So, um, and then the final phase included some kind of jump. Yes, final phase they had. Uh, can you still hear me here? Yes. Okay. Uh, they had hops with the barbell on their back, and then they actually did a, sort of a neat exercise that. Um, usually as part of French contrast types of training and uh, big and triphasic world, but where they had a band underneath sort of their underarms and then they hopped. So they were only using the ankle during all of this. And then to almost give like a, an accentuated eccentric there as well. And then they would do drop hops from a box, but again, just ankle. And then they did sort of, lateral side to side uh springs back and forth with just the ankle and then forward um springs with just okay the so, ankle. We're, so, we're, so we're really getting into some stretch some really strong stretch shortening cycle stuff at very yes. much at that ankle joint and for those people um perhaps who are not familiar with a stretch shortening cycle we've kind of talked about it a little bit um i'm going to refer to it as like a stretch recoil type action um because you know muscle lengthens and shortens very quickly it's obviously it's force output capabilities are a lot higher than if you were to just yeah. move um and and interestingly did you did you take any other measurements other than performance um pre and post this study in terms of like hypertrophy or or other you know what measures have you Beyond just jump height, what have you? What kind of been your variables that you've come out with? So, uh, like I 
like I said, maximal strength at two different ankle angles, so at a more plantar flex position and then at a neutral position. And then we looked at uh, active muscle stiffness where you can attach an ultrasound probe to the medial gastroc and visualize the fascicles and how much they displace. So what would um, happen is dancers would have their foot snug into the pedal of the dynamometer and they push to a certain threshold of torque and then the pedal will actually um, sort of like move their ankle back into a dorsiflex position and they're supposed to relax right when they detect movement. However, uh, cross bridges will still be engaged. So you can look at what is termed active muscle stiffness, although they're not generating active force, um, and then in tandem with fascicle displacement to determine the um, stiffness of it. So the force over the displacement gives you. And just out of interest, out of interest, because this is quite close to my heart, given my own master's uh, work, which uh, I wish, I mean, well, basically, I just have a real hard time fitting an ultrasound to a patella tendon, like, because, you know, it's a pain in the backside. So just so people understand, like, this, it's it's really intricate work, you know, it's not a case of just slapping on a, a, some kind of ultrasound thing, you know, you've got to position it correctly, and and do lots of, you know, potentially do a lot of measures in EMG and all those types of things as well. Um, so, you know, we're really getting down to looking at, like, the muscular tendon unit as well, yeah. um, ra- ra- rather than just these gross variables. There's actually a lot of other things like changing in, in, in fascicle length that you're getting or movement of fascicles, certainly, yeah. that you could potentially yeah. look at. We were able to look at tendon stiffness as well in a similar way. We just moved the probe instead of being just on the muscle belly to the musculotendinous junction. So then you can do basically the same thing, but more in an isometric fashion with uh, ramping up to your max and then looking at the force and then also the displacement of the tendon so that you can again get tendon stiffness. No, I'm just I'm just going to stop this recording just there. So essentially, what we you know you know we we are getting at is that you know people are um, very familiar with training muscles, but what you've been doing is is kind of training muscles, but also to try and change the properties of the tendon and the mm-hmm. stre- and the, the the changes in the performance via this stretch shortening cycle and this like elongation and contraction um, to produce force. So are you, are you, you know, are you, I presume you're able to give me some idea on, you know, the results and um, what you might have found in your preliminary findings. Yeah, so just sort of crude analysis has showed me that the dancers have definitely increased strength in their ankles. So maximal plantar flexion torque has increased and... That, I think, within itself is really important for dancers. We need them to have strong ankles. But also the amount of torque that you generate about the ankle and then the amount of displacement of the tendon will determine its stiffness. So uh, I can, you know, kind of speculate that 
their tendonstiffness has increased a little bit, whether that be due to the torque or the displacement kind of not nailed down yet. Uh, and then same with the muscle stiffness. So overall, the muscle and the tendons have been fortified, if you will. And then they have a uh, sort of soda shot performance where they've got markers all over their body to do motion capture um, for us to do motion capture on the leap and look at different joint kinetics and observe the residual force enhancement around the ankle. And just sort of crude analysis has shown that center of mass displacement from pre to post testing for most of the teachers in the training group has increased between two and five centimeters. So they're jumping. So they're jumping higher. You know, we can't. You can't deny that. And you're. You know, in time, your publication will determine whether or not it's a. Uh, it's significant yeah. of, of significance. But you know, I think. Yeah. I think that's. I think. Um. And a real life application is that often we. You know, we do, if we know dancers are flexible and they want. You know, dancers need more time in the air to show off what they've got. I think that's the way I always try and explain it. You know, I, I was posed a really interesting question by another researcher, which was, did dancers, do dancers need to jump higher? Does it really matter? I was posed that question too, and I have always, as a dancer myself, leaping high, jumping high was a huge priority for me. Yeah, and I think everyone is different in that, and it's obviously task specific but, as well. But then again, you know, if we're testing people via a counter movement jump using force dex, force plate, vertex, using an ox jump, whatever, it's not something that dancers can necessarily get their head round. Where, but if we, you know, if we've got these ways of saying, well, your grand jeté is now five centimeters higher, and maybe you could have got more time to access that splits that you want. Exactly. That they can kind of get their teeth into. Um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break there, but we're going to come back in a second. You're listening to the Science and Dance podcast with me, Rupert Wiltshire, and today I'm interviewing Paige Rice of Edith Cowan University, and we're discussing dance biomechanics. As always, give us a comment, leave your feedback, ask your questions, and let us know what you think. So, Paige, you mentioned that you kind of your your other uh, area of interest is, um, I guess, more down at like within muscle fiber type biology. Um, yeah. And this biophysics idea and or concept and uh, theories are are fascinating. Um, and for people that aren't familiar with um, what happens within a muscle? I think we're going to kind of briefly go over that now. Um, and you mentioned cross bridges, and yes. you men mentioned those in the realm of muscle contractions. So, can you kind of just give us a breakdown on when a muscle contracts? What have we got yeah. going? What have we got going on so that we can get into this next bit? Yeah. So, kind of the nitty gritty when you tell a muscle to generate force, and that electrical signal is sent all the way down to the muscle fiber, you've got uh, calcium that's released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum that kind of then goes and eventually results in actin and myosin engaging with one another and pulling on one another to generate force. And the almost neglected third brother within the sarcomere, the tiniest unit of the muscle where actin and myosin are housed, is titan. 
And Titan actually went unnoticed for years because it is so big. It is the largest protein known to man. It's 4.2 megadaltons, uh, or I should say 4,200 kilodaltons, where we've got myosin, which is another very big protein, around 200, I think, 250 maybe megadaltons. So it's, it's, you know, heaps bigger. And Titan is really interesting because where actin and myosin require ATP or require energy to engage with one another, Titan is sort of this free energy spring-like protein. So we don't know much about it still. There's a bit of animal research on Titan that has steered us in cool directions with it. But there's nothing really regarding the mechanical properties of human Titan molecules. So that is the other side of this project where I've looked at uh, or actually I should say I've obtained and I'm going to look at the mechanical properties of dancers' muscle fibers with this training and do some different tests looking at sort of Titan within the muscle fiber. So, so, so it, I guess my, I guess the point of me asking you what that is is is, is so that um, I guess uh, uh, we understand and beyond what the textbook says um, about just the about what training does. Yeah, you know, it has these broader systemic changes that don't just uh, dictate whether a muscle grows or shrinks. You know, a muscle can change yeah. its contractile properties through training yes. and and that probably happens you know in a different time frame than we're used to hearing so if you know if you want a muscle to contract better yes there can be some like neurological adaptation as you become familiar to it but maybe there's some things on a deeper level such as like this cross bridge efficiency and you know the the, the amount of cross bridges taking place the activation levels of the muscle like that can all increase with training is it can't it Yes. So I think a really interesting area is, you know, sort of the, the muscle fibers ability to shift as well. So you've got different types. So we've got obviously our slow twitch type one and then fast twitch type 2A and type 2X. And they each sort of in a hierarchy have different um contraction velocities like you mentioned and then you know within a motor unit you've got different firing properties as well so that would be the neural side of it that if you tell an athlete to you know do squats as fast as they can then you're training the system to get used to that type of movement at that you know sort of rate uh now with titan there's kind of a different you know, sort of mystery there where there might be some isoform changes and that might be the reason for muscles adapting as well. Do they have, you know, a greater ability to store energy after this type of training because of isoform changes? Um, you know, there's sort of the T1, T2 discussion where, you know, T1 is suspected to be a more holistic fragment of Titan. T2 might be a little bit more broken down. Uh, but as my supervisor, Kisa, always says, 
Titan is and looking for Titan and what Titan does in a muscle is like looking for a needle in a haystack. So trying to determine though whether or not, you know, just in the most simplest of senses, does a muscle fiber's stiffness increase after training is really quite important because we know that, you know, muscles are such an important part of obviously performance in addition to all the other components of our bodies, but it's quite easy to damage a muscle. So, so what, do you, can, what do you expect happens um, with, or what do you hypothesize, what's the theory behind what happens to Titan as you train? Or, so I would, I would speculate that it does change in isoform. Okay. So if um, what we suspect is happening with Titan, which is almost a winding filament, type of occurrence so during allowing the muscle to store more energy and yes some, okay so it's almost like uh kind of the, the tendon but on a very much smaller scale where we're we're teaching it to kind of lengthen more um or at least resist more which will kind of be like a rubber band effect and we've got a we've obviously got to also put into context the fact that we're not going to say that this necessarily impacts your flexibility. You know, we've been talking about stiffness an awful lot, um, but it's stiffness, it's, it's stiffness in terms of being mechanically rigid rather than whether a muscle is impossible, whether it's difficult for a muscle to change length. Yes. So that is that is such a good point within dance science. It's important that we understand. You know, mobility and flexibility is different um, where we want to obviously have joints that can fully extend and flex, etc. Um, but when you're talking about the muscle, usually, uh, you know, that's we've got a little bit of confusion with that, but um, it's not within the joint capsule that we're discussing. So we're talking just within sort of, yeah, the smallest unit of the muscle there. And I think uh, for dancers, that's a concern as well with uh, weight training almost, is that they'll become, you know, almost stiff from it. And I think with the amount of stretching that dancers carry out every day, uh, usually that's almost like a protective mechanism. You probably aren't going to lose. Could you, could, is, is there any chance then, you know, do you think that um, there is some like mediation between how much flexibility work dancers do and the amount they get from their training? Do you think there's any kind of inhibitory uh, effect of the range of motion they flex themselves through, stretch themselves through, and how much they can get from, from this kind of training? Because, you know, obviously like, I'm very aware and I see it a lot of times in like clinic rehab coaching settings, you know, we have tendon overload. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of tendinopathy, which is the phrase I will use uh, or the term I will use rather than tendonitis or anything like that, where there we, we do have overused tendons. And I, do you think there's implications in your training to avoid that? Yes, there are, because I actually feel that tendinopathy most of the time is due to a lack of muscular strength. So in order for, uh, you know, kind of the tendon to not be overstretched, 
you need to be able to tell the tendon what to do at the right time. So maybe there's something going on there a little bit deeper with the way that, you know, a, a dancer is moving. But also there are high ground contacts in dance that I would love to see less, less training in dancers, uh, less dance specific training and then almost substitute five hours a week with just one hour of strength and conditioning because I think that that would probably benefit most dancers. It's just such overuse. I think I think the organization of training is something that's often discussed within SNC and certainly discussed within like big team sports that are well funded. You know, if you have the luxury um, to be a full time athlete then you know which i kind of fortunately was able to kind of be one at uni um where all i had to essentially do was turn up to a lecture in the morning and go training you know essentially we were we, we were getting in like seven eight nine sessions a week if you counted two on a weekend um but we would like do you know rowing training and then weight training straight after so you know the volume of training was super high but yeah. it was it was relatively structured to it to so that we um, could improve yeah. or certainly improve within a given time slot where they like the old one year plan. Um, but we kind of go for this massive rush um, in dance culture of like, we've got to teach them everything. They've got to be versatile as an egg. They've got to be yeah. um, doing, doing everything, um, doing everything and like getting um, as much from their genre and the coaching yes. time as possible. And I and I get that to a certain extent, but what I would love to see, and I think is probably the step that we're gonna do first, and I think people are starting to do this, certainly in this country, is deload ballet. Yeah, uh, and like, big fan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, in, and, and let, you know, let's do our Grand Allegro when we're fresh. Yeah, yes. Let, uh, I, I think, you know, we're starting to break a little bit of the culture and the, I should say the maybe not as positive culture. So the, those aspects of dance that I think have persisted for a little bit too long. And, you know, you, you used the term earlier. Um, I don't know what you use something in regards to dancers and injury. Right. I don't know what I but said. They, they have, What's up? I don't know what I said, but okay. I don't remember either. But it was basically just referring to dancers as being so fragile all the time. Or like, you know, they get injured all the time. Yeah, well, I, I always feel like, I mean, this is just anecdotally, you know, we're constantly changing the program because um, yeah. I'm like, oh, right, the teacher made you do that seven times on the left. I wasn't planning on that. Now we can't, now we can't do yeah. our jump session. and. A lot of the times, a coach, I'm going, or like making like noises under my breath because I'm frustrated. Yes. But I think um, at the same time, to know that we can get um, improvements out of muscular training, like you've done on your study for nine weeks mm. without necessarily intervening on jumping. Now you yeah. don't, now we don't. You, it's it's difficult to say um, which was the biggest contributing factor. But as you said at the beginning, you block periodized it. You've ideally tried to do one thing in order to peak another, and that's the way I kind of yeah. like to be. I think within when it comes back to um, what's great about your study, from my point of view as a coach, and in a certainly through to dance application, is that it's like okay, if we do this, 
we will get positive improvements in the things you so want to seek, but you've right. got to make time for it in the plan. Yes, end of the day, that is the takeaway, isn't it? Yeah, and, and this is what I, I love to bang home, and I love to say to everybody is that, look, okay, it's great that you're doing some S&C, but are you adding insult to injury and just doing more? That's, yeah, I think really the next step for dance, you know, progression is to, like you said, kind of continue to refine their schedules of training load all together love and the load love we love the load we love the training yeah, load, we, love the load. <laughs> we do love the load but i think i think it really does just come down to common sense as well you know yeah. if, if someone is training 20 hours a week and then all of a sudden now they've got five more hours of s and c like you said is that just adding insult to injury so um so where, where, how does that bigger. link how does that link with what you're doing next you know does it what are your what are your next kind of questions off the back of this and and is it something we can look at more longitudinally in terms of planning organization how it's structured taking into account what types of things people are doing the time of day all of those big questions that are, are kind of important but um, yeah go on so i think something i really like to get into obviously this study was very very focused on the ankle and I will be an ankle ride or die fan forever with dancers but I would like to see some other types of training with dancers in the weight room so not necessarily uh you know Pilates based as we've got quite a bit um but still doing you know kind of your classic S&C where I think dancers would still really benefit from squatting. And if you could just throw them on some type of squatting protocol for eight weeks, how does that influence their stretch for cycle function as well? And, and I guess, I guess from, a, from a coach's point of view is that we have a huge needs analysis within dance um, and, and a variety of things. And you, you don't want to be like a catch-all and say that you right. know, squatting will fix everything because I mean, I know that it won't. And I think that like, folk, you know, a lot of, one of the questions I get asked most frequently and, you know, you'll be able to um, shed, shed, certainly shed some light on this based upon the types of training you did, even just at the ankle is right. somebody says to me, should I be doing bilateral or should I do be doing unilateral? And I always just come back to them and say, why do you have to pick? Um, yeah, just, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's important for dancers, obviously, to be well-versed in everything. <laughs> so they have to understand how to control their body in such, you know, crazy positions, if, you know, if that's technically correct. But uh, teaching them how to engage things when they want to. So I think that's really what... Uh, sort of my, my verbal feedback from my participants has been is that they feel like they're in more control of their body, although they've been dancing for 20 years. And all, and all they've done is train the ankle. Yeah. And the reason is because they've got a bar on their back or they're having to hop and still get the whole body up off the ground uh, or whatever it might be. But it's, it's training them. If you've got load on the system, it has to deal with it. 
So it's this, essentially, you know, we've got to we've got to come down to the fact that it is the system that's adapting, even though we're training one aspect of it. You know, it, which is kind of yes. something hard, to, a difficult concept even for a coach to get their head around is that you know, I, well, yeah. I, I thought I was I thought I was training my pinky finger well. You know, actually, <laughs> lots of things have changed. You know, you've got a different pinky finger now, and you've got yes. and and I think that whole idea of like um, some kind of external body or mass. Um, introduction to a dancer um, mm. changes uh, a lot of things, and I can't put my finger quite on what it might change because you well, know maybe yeah. maybe you've got some other adaptations in from your study that you've not even yeah. measured that elsewhere. Oh, there are heaps you could never measure enough things. I mean, there's an entire bank of neural measures that I didn't even tap into which would be quite interesting to see uh, what what went on there neurally. Uh, I have DEXA scans on my dancers, and it appears that uh, they all put on a little bit of muscle. I don't know sort of like exacts of numbers quite yet, um, but yeah, I think any type of training that is new stimulus can be really positive for athletes. So. With these dancers, you know, another thing I noticed, I think I mentioned before, is that they're quite confident now when they step into a weight room. And I think that, you know, just being able to perform and feel strong is really, really exciting. So it takes looking, it, it takes time, though, doesn't it? I think, um, you know, and you and um, I think your study hits it on, on the head really well is that simple effective organized and just very consistent you know with with the training that you've done um and therefore you get results i think you know we're often you if you're an if you're a reg if you're a uh, what i would call a social gym user and you're a dancer you're very keen for that variety and you want to feel like you've been completely flawed and i think um the organization of my of our training or the same work that I do is that I am an add-on essentially. And therefore I have I, I get see dancers in all states. That I could see them in the morning, I could see them in the evening, and it's it changes. Yep, right. And it's difficult. Um, but nevertheless, there's a lot to be said for doing some simple things very, very well for a period of time and sticking with it because you're yeah. getting changes essentially after three months. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's definitely that sort of back and forth between researchers and strength and conditioning coaches is that, you know, a strength and conditioning coach is doing a study every single day. When you have athletes come into the weight room, you're seeing, you know, what, what has changed over the past five weeks or whatever it might be, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, when we try as researchers to refine what exactly the reason it is changing or isn't changing, uh, you know, that I think is sort of the foundation, hopefully, for where strength and conditioning will go. So I'm really hoping that this study is able to demonstrate some positive results for ankle training, but that has sort of a carryover into overall dance-specific stretch shortening cycle function as well. So seeing that dancers can, like I said, preserve that technique while increasing sort of, you know, the overall power behind a leap, which I think is 
obviously dependent upon the genre that a dancer is performing, but really is quite a unique aspect of dance that, you know, they, they are powerful athletes. Where does this take your, your research next? You know, what's the next, what's next on the, on the list for you? Um, apart from probably what sounds like you need a, re- a rest. And, and also, and also, you mentioned you mentioned some biopsies to me. I said we'd get into that as well. You know, what are you hoping to gain from um, taking? Those some, are the Titan. So that's the Titan. That's it, right? So okay. That's the Titan. Yes. So my next uh, sort of step will be analyzing those biopsies from the dancers' calves. We took biopsies from the medial gastroc, and then which I should probably point out to listeners is no mean feat. You know, you really have to uh, grit your teeth on that one. Um, so, okay, uh, biopsy, we did microbiopsies, and they're about the size of a pen tip, and we took three samples, um, both pre and post, from dancers' abs, so about uh, 15 milligrams each, so that would be basically like the lead of a pencil, um, and then we'll look at the tighten and the muscle fiber properties with from those biopsies so that would be next in terms of um you know sort of finishing this up and then after i finish my phd i'm hoping to continue to do dance research and uh eventually become a professor i guess i'll have to get a real job at some point yeah i mean <laughs> I, stay, stay, in, stay in academia forever you know you never, never yeah, feel like you, you know, never grow up i love it i love the behind it. What, what's so nice what's so great is that you know this is so such applicable work like I'm learning I've even learned a lot you know just from terms of application or it certainly got me thinking as a coach because I am that first um and I'm, I do miss I miss the research but you know it's great how um your um understanding of what like dance teachers dancers and coaches need in order to move forward and like real world application of that i guess is yeah. i guess is is big i mean the uk sca uk strength is massive on the practical applications of things and so yeah. so is the nsca with their publication As they could be. And, and, uh, and and i think bridging that is really important in this project for me has been yes just like very humbling because you know as a researcher you can rock up and just analyze data and stare at your computer. But really as a coach, you have to be on all the time and, you know, engaging with your athletes. And so I I would love to do potentially in the future more analysis of of looking at what's determining dancers' performance. So, yeah, that was my next question is kind of, obviously we've got this, this jump height and athleticism, um, aspect of, to performance but we've also got the skill and movement quality aspect to performance too yeah. and you know i think there's some going to be some interesting research certainly hopefully in the future from from the uk looking at like mechanical jerk and looking at you know the smoothness of movement is that something that interests you as well being such you know you are on the performance aspect of things and you do like that yes. so, so where does where does performance study within dance go next in your opinion. Yeah, I think I think really it's going to come down to either motion capture or accents type of study where you're able to assess, you know, this type of movement 
you know, such as the Grand Jeté, is most successfully completed when the athlete has a higher takeoff velocity, when their, you know, hip torque is higher, when their ankle torque is higher, or, you know, the impulse is balanced at this point or that point within the stretch shortening cycle. And I think, yeah, trying to figure out where art meets athleticism is going to be um, a big interest in my career because I want to try and put numbers to the qualitative things. Obviously, obviously, as, as you know, coaches and researchers in dance science, we know what looks good, but how do you make it look how it's supposed to in a more novice dancer or someone who's, you know, so you, you can kind of target those imbalances and have kind of like the ultimate. But it's not too far. It's not too far from the examples that we see kind of on the Olympic stage where you've got somebody running with what looks like poor function, but they're yeah. 20 meters ahead. They're 20 meters ahead of someone else. But that's their goal. I mean, it doesn't matter what they look like. You and, can. And no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but in dance, it does. It does. Yes. And, and that's the, so that's what we need to quantify and sort of go from there, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, I think um, you, you raise an interesting point with um, getting people to um, perceive what it what they like on stage, what they like on video. And, you know, there is the argument is like, how, can we even, will we ever be able to even quantify what we associate with joy? <laughs> Uh, or, or in, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's very you know, now. I like yeah, but that's where that's uh, I, this is why I love coaching is because I, I mean, yeah. anybody that I train will tell will tell you that like I am constantly having a battle with myself between all this, all the stuff that people need to like people need to hear from you, and like me just going, does it even matter? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, I doing a PhD is you get to a point where you're like, does this matter? And, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. do I do these long hours? Is this worth it? Um, which it most certainly is, but it's true. I think at the end of the day, it, it is about enjoyment from both the, you know, dancer's side and then from the, pers- the you know, sort of like the spectator side. And that is the neat thing about dancers and why probably it has taken so long to train dancers is because they are first and foremost are But then they get joy out of jumping high, so that's good. But they get joy out of jumping high, so if they want to jump higher, just have them get in there and, and move some weight. And, you know, and then it comes back full circle, you think to yourself, why was I having an argument with myself? But it's so... Um, I, there, I, and I think this is why a lot of us that when we get into dance research or you get into dance science is we, we stay there um, yeah. because there are so many questions and we can't leave it unanswered and we're that kind of like dogmatic type of pers- person where all S&C coaches are you know we get we get hooked yeah. and I think dance was one of those realms with not very many answers yet and yeah we're very infantile which is exciting which is why I wanted to get you on, and I think it's been great to um, hear from you and your thoughts on like training, because it's um, something that people haven't necessarily been exposed to. 
So as we mentioned, just to wrap it up really, Paige, is that, you know, there are training studies out there in comparison to conventional or traditional sports science where dance science, we, we, we've said it so many times, it's a little bit behind, but we are catching up. We're making positive inroads here. And if, um, I'm sure every, all the listeners will agree with me. It's fascinating to have somebody, have somebody come on with such um, a traditional SNC background or SNC research background and apply it so well. Um, Thank you. And especially just not, you know, from a variety of different countries, you know, you've gone from the US to um, Australia and, and back again, and, and you're working with a variety of different, you know, you've been comparing volleyball people, sedentary people, dancers, the lot. And actually, um, you, you know, I hope, I hope that we can um, take some of the principles that you've used in your training study and continue to use them um, to you know, potentially have a good effect on dance health in general, whether that's performance or injury rehabilitation based. I think that was another thing that I would certainly like to see. Um, I'm quite interested on your standpoint is, you know, we need probably need some rehabilitation studies too. Yeah. Um, which would probably, but, but then it would look, would, <laughs> but then that would look very similar because, you know, S and C programming, rehab programming, is it, is it that different? Um, I think that's one for one for the physios out there as well. It's like you know, definitely. Um, Martin here on here. He's next. He's next. Yeah. He's not getting out of that. You know, he has got some brilliant ideas. And but again, you know, we we've just been talking, you know, about the philosophy of it things. But Martin's background, um, who's Martin, by the way, is the physio of Scottish Ballet. His background is psychology. His first degree was in psychology, and therefore he comes at physio from such a personal point of view and uh, holistic, which is which is awesome. So thank you for kind of giving us so much insight on not only a molecular biology level, but also <laughs> also what that might mean to a dancer or to a dance teacher. Um, we've gone right the way through. We've gone, I feel like we've gone like big to small uh, and then back again. Um, yeah. In terms of like the questions. So Paige, thank you so much. Um, if people are kind of interested in your work, and you do you have twitter or anything like that do you are you like a, a active in terms of putting things out there yeah um first off i want to say thank you so much for having me it's been so uh great chatting with you i know we always have good conversations so love your questions love your answers as well with stuff and as far as reaching out uh yes i do have a twitter i'm quite a grandma in terms of use let me look what my handle is. But I, I, I imagine, I imagine people might just even want to discuss, you know, other researchers, other that that haven't come across your work will be really interested to see your stuff when it does eventually get published. So yeah, um, and I, I have some things out there published currently on dancers. I think I have, I want to say five publications regarding um, some studies I've done with dancers. So yeah, definitely. Um, you know, if, if so, people, people just need to people just need to get on Google Scholar, or is it? Are they Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research papers? Where what where, where, where? There's, there's one in Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, two in Journal of Dance Medicine and Science, I believe, and one in Journal of Applied Biomechanics, and I guess the other ones are non. My other pubs are not dance related, but. Um, Anything you have Google Scholar or PubMed and on Twitter it's just page E Rice One. 
So I'm happy to, yeah, chat with anyone more, answer any questions, and of course, always discuss things. And and people will see you at iAdams in Montreal, won't they? Is that correct? Yes, I've got a presentation on some of this work there, and then also uh, a couple presentations with the iAdams Student Committee, where we'll be discussing the research process. So Fab, so they can really, wow. That you're a great person to do that. That's awesome. I I was a big pusher for talking about the research process this year, so I'm very excited about it, and I've been um, throwing together the presentation, so it'll be a fun sort of crash course, I think, for all of us to figure out how we get, you know, get more dance literature. Well, Paige, all the stuff to say, thank you very much, and um, I'm sure further down the line we'll get a part two in because you've been great. So thanks very much. Thank you, Rupert.